Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Mad Moments Podcast. My name is Sim. Along with me are my co-host, Noreen. And uh, we have a wonderful show for you this evening. Before we get to our topic of the evening, we'll give a quick shout out to our sponsors. HalfHourDean.com is the place where you go for the private matrimonial experience. If you know of anyone who is interested in finding a significant other, refer them to HalfHourDean.com for the private matrimonial experience. Get them uh, away from the swipe left and swipe right game. HalfHourDean.com wahidinvest.com is a website dedicated to halal investing make sure your income is being generated in a halal manner go to wahidinvest.com and finally myosia.com is a website dedicated to creating a sharia compliant will go to myosia.com for your personalized legal will Assalamualaikum, how y'all doing? We have another episode, and it's a surprise episode because I wasn't sure if I want to do it live or not because um, of a whole lot of reasons, just because we <laughs> go live a lot and sometimes it can be too much. But anyway, uh, we have a wonderful episode for you guys this evening. We have Sister Aiden Unwar, who is a uh, Uyghur uh, activist who, yeah, she is a fourth year undergrad student at Duke University, majoring in international comparative studies. She's focused a lot of her work on the plight of the East Turkestan and its occupation through her fieldwork of Uyghur refugees in Turkey. And she's appeared in a lot of uh, recent media outlets like TRT, Al Jazeera, Now This. A lot of her recent views have gotten as much as 60 million downloads. So that's pretty amazing, Aiden. How are you handling the, a lot of the, the f- newfound celebrity that, uh, that that's come your way because of uh, bringing this important topic to people's attention? And especially, it, it's tough because it's people generally don't want to hear sad news. And yeah, I mean, it's it, seeing that many views was like it was a good thing because for so long this was an issue that a lot of people have not known about and to see that finally you know things are going a little bit viral was i feel like i felt like some of our efforts were kind of like you know being seen and um and that people were actually starting to pay attention we're actually shocked to, to hear what was happening because essentially what we have and we'll touch obviously touch on this later but um we see almost like a broom genocide taking place yeah yeah i mean when when i heard about this it was just a, a lot of thoughts came into my mind when I was growing up about the Bosnian genocide and that was something that really hit home to me. Well, not necessarily hit home because I'm Indian and not very Bosnian looking at all, or nor do I know any Bosnians, but you know, we, we we're Muslims and we have this connection to our global Muslim community. And when I was young, we, we were always taught about Muslim brotherhood, not the organization Muslim brother but the actual <laughs> Muslim unity that, yeah. that we, we have this concern for one another and um, I'm just humbled and honored to have someone like you on who is representing the the Uyghur community and um, telling us a little bit about the struggles that they're facing the, well struggle is a mild word it's really a genocide and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how your family came to uh, the states and yeah your yeah. story yeah. so 
I was born and raised in the Washington DC suburbs, specifically Fairfax, Virginia. Um, so alhamdulillah, like I, I myself, and so, so my, my family is from uh, East Turkestan, which is a nation under the occupation of China. And throughout this podcast, I won't be saying China or like, I won't necessarily be saying we're from China or uh, what China calls our region as Xinjiang, which actually means new territory, um, because calling the region Xinjiang is actually considered really offensive because it's a colonial it's a colonial name. Um, and to put things into perspective, it's like there's an analogy that's that I often use to illustrate why it's offensive to call the region Xinjiang. And it's because, like, if you imagine yourself. Um, you know, you've been named something your whole life and then someone kidnaps you and then renames you as like new property in the language of the oppressors. And then everyone who vouches for you then says, then calls you by that new name. So, um, and, and the original name of our land is East Turkestan, which actually means the land of the Eastern Turks. And um, and I can touch base back later on, you know, um, in, in a bit about like, you know, who we are as a people and, um, you know, what our ethnicity is, what our, what our culture is like. Um, so my family hails from, from East Turkestan and they came to the United States. My dad came in 1988. My mom came in uh, 1991. Um, my dad came as, a, as one of the first Uyghur political Isailis um, in the United States. And, uh, and so me and my siblings were all born here. Um, I have two older brothers and a younger sister. And throughout my life, I've kind of spent a lot of my time being... So I was raised under the, like, the shadows of my dad's political activism. He's a political activist and has essentially dedicated his entire life to uh, trying to liberate his people. Um, in 2004, he established the East Turkestan government in exile, um, and he's one of the prime uh, leaders of the, the independence movement of East Turkestan. So growing up, I kind of, you know, a lot of my childhood was like spent... I remember going to like protests, demonstrations in Washington, D.C., um, you know, hearing about the atrocities. But at the time, like I never really fully understood what these meant. I kind of just like went with the flow and was just, like, you know, which wait, wait, whoa, whoa, slow down, slow down. Wait, this is this has been going on for since you were a kid, because yeah, for, for, so, I mean, most of us found out about this like at least yeah, a year ago. And yeah. Whoever is even just uh, remotely politically conscious, like, oh, you know, those darn Chinese, we got to tell them to stop, you know. Uh, yeah so this is something that everyone thinks is like a new thing they're like oh concentration camps uh holding muslims and um but this is actually so to put into context east turkestan again is is a nation under the occupation of china and we've been under the occupation most recently since 1949 when communist china came to power before then we lived uh, with um centuries of independence until we were um, invaded by the Manchu Qing Empire in 1759. And then multiple rebellions occurred. And essentially when the Manchu Qing Empire collapsed in uh, 1911, um, that's when nationalized China came to power. And that was the first official Chinese invasion that took place. Um, And then multiple rebellions occurred. And then we had the establishment of the first East Turkestan Islamic Republic in 1933. And that was shortly crushed. And then there was also another formation of this East Turkestan Islamic Republic in 1944. And then five years later, that was crushed with the help of the Soviet Union. Um, and so, um, so like we, so, so under. So, so the, yeah. the, the, the listeners are now seeing East Turkestan and where it's located. Obviously, it's east uh-huh. of China. And, and the name is, itself is very curious because people don't associate right. Turks with Chinese. And, and uh, right. you know, when, when you see East right. Turkestan, like, you always thought like, oh, that's part of China. They must have the Great Wall somewhere nearby right. over there. And, right. you know, 
tell us a little bit about how uh, Muslims ended up over there. Um, so, I mean, so what we see there is the Uyghur homeland. And so if you look at the map that was just shown, the, it's on the, the northwest part. It was the blue, it was the blue flag. It looks exact, the flag looks exactly like the Turkish flag, but it's light blue. It's right above Tibet. Um, and again, we are in occupied territory. And so we were actually, um, uh, centuries ago, you know, we lived like towards like, the Mongol Empire and then we kind of, I'm sorry, the Mongolian uh, area. And then we kind of migrated down um, and uh, that's, but essentially that Uyghur homeland has been um, uh, in existence for centuries. Um, and it has, and if you look at, if you go to the region, certain parts, you can see, like people go there and they're like, like tourists or foreigners who go there for the first time, they're like, how the heck is this China? This does not look anything like it. Um, and I'm talking about particularly like certain uh, towns and villages, not the big cities where it's right now a lot of Han influence. But, um, you know, people who go there are are shocked because they're like, this isn't, there's no way this is China because they look, the people don't even look Chinese. The language that we speak isn't even Chinese. It's a Turkic dialect. So Uyghurs are a Turkic ethnic group. Um, so, and yeah, a lot of our culture... Go ahead a lot and of expound, our culture, expound on that for, for our listeners because a lot of people think just associate Turks with Turkey. And talk a little oh, bit yeah. about the, the Turkic people in, in general. Yeah, so, I mean, the Turkic people is a huge, you know... Uh, population and, and, and it comprises of different ethnicities. So it's not just people in Turkey. Um, it's it's you know um, it, people from Central Asia, like so East Turkestan. You have the Uyghurs, and then you have Uzbekistan. Uh, you have um, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and so and you have a lot of these ethnicities, not just Uyghurs, who are also living within uh, East Turkestan as well. So uh, you know. We the Uyghur population itself is around 35 million, and they we, there's an estimated additional five million other Turkic people living within East Turkestan, majority of whom are Kazakh. Um, and uh, uh, it's it's interesting because China actually lowers these numbers as much as possible, and they they claim that we are a population of around 11, 12 million, and that's a way to just basically lower numbers by paper. Um, but essentially, right now uh, they're they're trying to lower these numbers in physically as well and, and and culturally by trying to forcibly assimilate us into the Chinese state. But yeah, if you go to the region, like, um, you know, where, so we're Turkic by ethnicity and, you know, where uh, our, our religion is, everyone there is pretty much Muslim. You see the, our culture has been embedded, like, without Islam, like, we have no culture. Um, and you can, if, if people who've gone there, you can see that through your eyes, just the fact that there's like a mosque on every block of the street um, and, you know, people's culture and, and lifestyle is basically framed around um, uh, Islamic, Islamic, an Islamic way of life. And um, even if you go to uh, Qashqar, for example, like that, that was like the capital of the Qarakhan Empire. Um, and and uh, they had Islamic institutions uh, really uh, based there. And a lot of the sciences, arts, music, um, and and scholarly material were actually uh, framed around these Islamic institutions that were built there. So, um, and Islam actually came to the region in. So we so Uyghurs actually originally pr- used to practice Buddhism, Manjism, and shamanism, but when uh, um, but then we had uh, conversion uh, into Islam in the 10th century 
um, during the Qarahan Empire, and particularly with the help of one sultan named Sultan Stukhbukhrahan. And he was one of the Turkic, first Turkic rulers to convert to Islam. And from then, that sparked the Islamization of much of Central Asia. So alhamdulillah, like, I mean, since then, we've all been, um, I would say, 99.999% of, of Uyghurs actually identify as Muslim. Yeah, uh, you. Anyone who's like studying Islamic history, you uh, read about some of the expeditions that many of the Khulafa had sent to the uh, western parts of China, and and now you see a result of that. You kind of understand, and then that those stories kind of formulate or crystallize in your mind, because you, you know, as you're seeing Sister Aiden here, uh, who is a result of some of those expeditions to to China. Right. Uh, but talk a little bit about what what the people are like uh, in present day East Turkestan. So, okay, in, so in because China in terms uh, of like religiosity, because the the way China right. is like the the way the the way they're painting them out to be is that they're a there's an existential threat that's coming from the Uyghur Chinese uh, that uh, sorry the Uyghur Muslims to the Chinese that uh, that they are somehow going to take over with sharia law or or some kind of you know uh some kind of a religious fanaticism mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about how their their practice of islam is so okay so that's a really broad question yeah. because right now at this very moment it's almost impossible to practice islam in east Turkestan. Right. um so if i want to touch if i want to talk about this very current moment Essentially, China is using the global war on terror launched by the U.S. as an excuse to um, claim that we are terrorists, that we are people who are, um, you know, are likely to be infected with uh, a, quote, ideological illness, which is Islam, which could then transfer into terrorism and violent acts. Um, And they they equate separatism with uh, terrorism. even though honestly, like even the term separatism is problematic because separatism implies that we've always been a part of the Chinese state, which is not true. Um, we're actually in occupied territory. So, you know, for those who are trying to seek an independent state, you know, we we would say these are people who are trying to restore independence and not necessarily separate from the state because but, but, we're not. But why are they calling you guys? Why do they consider Uyghur Muslims a threat? What is so threatening? What has been happening that's led up to this? Okay, so... I would say that, um, so there have been like terrorist attacks that have happened. Um, there have been incidents of violence occurring um, within certain cities. There was a recent um, knife attack in, I think, 2013 that had killed around 30 Han civilians, for example, um, or uh, or like the most recent riot um, protests that occurred in 2009 um, in Urumqi, for example, that ended up being a really violent um breakout between ethnic Han and Uyghurs killing, which led to uh, the death of hundreds of people, the the arrest of thousands of people and disappearance of thousands of Uyghurs. And since then, China has essentially been using these these incidents of violence to to basically further crack down on us and say that we are cracking down on Islamic extremism and these people are a threat. So, um, but, but essentially this is also a big territorial issue. And that's something I want to emphasize is because if this was about being Muslim, um, you'd also see the, the, Hui, the Hui Muslims who live in mainland China also being, uh, 
rounded up into concentration camps, for example. Um, so this this right now isn't actually an, an issue of ethnicity and territory, but they're using religion as a huge excuse to uh, crack down on us and, and essentially claim that if if anyone who has any slight ties to religion, um, they are they are um, essentially uh, risk uh, at risk of of becoming a terrorist. So right now, practicing Islam is completely banned. For example. Praying is banned. Fasting is banned. I can't, like, oh, an Uyghur wouldn't even be able to say assalamu alaikum. Um, you can't even say the word Allah. You have to replace the word Allah with uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, or the CCP. So instead of saying, <laughs> oh like, God. so, like, in Uyghur Chinese, we don't, if you, if you don't say inshallah, the Uyghur way of saying is khudayim bursa, right? Khuda means God. So you'd have to replace khuda with uh, Allah. I mean, sorry, with uh, Xi Jinping or CCP. So you'd be like, oh, CCP Bursa or uh, Xi Jinping Bursa. Oh um, yeah, it's, it's, it's comes to you can't like in the prisons, they force the detainees to yell instead of saying Allahu Akbar, they would have to yell uh, Xi Jinping Akbar. Um, and uh, you have to and if you even if you go into a mosque, which are nowadays essentially completely empty um, and you go into the mosque or surveillance, there's a, like a, on top of the 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 Minbar, there's actually a picture of Xi Jinping that you have to make sujood towards. So they're essentially mm-hmm. trying to convert like like Islam, or they're trying to brainwash. Exactly, she has people's devotion to God to the Chinese state, and they're trying to they're forcing them to become atheists. Essentially, now they have you know reports of people being forced to drink alcohol, eat pork. Um, you're not obviously not allowed to wear hijab. Um, it, so, uh, so are people you know, hi- are, being are people hiding their Islam at this point? So right now it's like yeah. So essentially, like Islam is kept within your heart because even right now, like there is no private space. There's no such thing as private space because even in the homes, they are they are actually surveilling Uyghurs within the home. So they actually take have hand government like officials and and civilian workers to live inside Uyghur homes to make sure you're not engaging in religion and to assess your political views. And so they'll literally wow. like just they'll, and they're encouraged to sleep under the same covers, like literally sleep on the same bed as Uyghur families. And they what? claim what China claims. What China claims is is that this is a way to unite, uh, to 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 promote ethnic unity between ethnic Han and Uyghurs, um, and so, so that's and a, that's, that's a that's new that's term for a lot of. We were just talking about the ethnicities. Now you mentioned right. Han a couple times. People don't right. know what Han is, and and can you just a little bit yeah. of, tell them a little bit about what the Han are? So the ethnic Han is one of so the Han people are one of the. Um, the ethnicities with living within China, they're the majority. And um, recently, uh, and they obviously, they speak Mandarin. Um, and they're, uh, and ever since the occupation, uh, specifically since the 1990s, you have, we have mass migration flows from mainland parts of China to East Turkestan, um, to the point where like these major cities of East Turkestan, like Urumqi are now majority Han. And what's caused a lot of tension between the two ethnicities is the fact that uh, and they, they'll be coming to these regions because East Turkestan is really rich in minerals and resources. And, you know, there's a lot. And then uh, it's also really spacious, obviously. There's also lots of job opportunities. So they would send, they, they would incentivize Han people to go live, to migrate to uh, and live in East Turkestan. And, um, uh, and so that's, that it's essentially we see the Han migration and, and, as like the colonizers or the, it kind of uh, it kind of sounds to me like the situation that the North Koreans are under, right? Yeah, um, but uh, Aiden, I always hear this from uh, the Han Chinese that oh, there's things that the Uyghurs did that 
you, you right. they don't tell you uh, they don't tell everyone about that there's there's uh inherent uh, hostilities from the weaker uh population that, that that they never talk about is is there any truth to that is there any merit to that claim or is that just kind of disguising yeah, or... yeah can you talk a little bit about that yeah so the a lot of the tension has risen because of this like increasing tension like the fact that like we would have been like driven to poverty because ethnic Han are migrating to the region. You know, we're being, we're basically living under the effects of an occupation. Um, and, and, you know, and, and people are, Han are taking jobs or living are, are always like, even if, even if an Uyghur were to go to like the best colleges in China, um, the people who get priority when it comes to getting jobs are, are, are ethnic Han. And so these kind of tensions have, have been existing and, um, and, when these, when these, uh, when the few acts of violence occur, then China has used these as, and has uh, have amplified these and been like, look, these people are dangerous, they're extremists, um, and now they've, and and so and the ethnic Han people, a lot of Chinese people who are living in China actually, honestly, get really brainwashed by the government. Um, even even honestly, Chinese international students here at my school. Um, or and elsewhere as well, they they are really really um, seeped into the the narrative produced by the Chinese government. And the Chinese government essentially claims that we've always been a that East Turkestan or Xinjiang has always been a part of China. That we are uh, one of the ethnic minorities, even though like even calling us an ethnic minority is problematic because within relation to our own homeland, like we are a majority, and that this and like that land belongs to us, um, and that we are Chinese, like they, they play, they promote these narratives, um, that are problematic and are, you know, wait, are, are, are there any jihadist groups in Xinjiang or, or the Uyghur population? Is there any organized revolt is I think the main question, is mm-hmm. there any legitimate right. claim that the Chinese can make that, Hey, there is a, an existential threat to our nation that we're trying to stamp out. Yeah. So, I mean, outside of, so right now, I mean, that, that kind of group cannot, even if, if word exists, it cannot exist within China because that's essentially impossible. Like even gathering, having a group, a gathering within your home for more than five people can like send you to one of the concentration camps. Um, but outside of China, this is something that China has also completely exaggerated and, and blew out of proportion. There's claiming that outside of China, there are these huge uh, jihadist groups who are going to uh, essentially wage war and, and, um, you know, basically blow up all of East Turks. And they claim that there's an explosion in East Turks on every single day, which is not true. Um, right now, people who actually go to East Turks are saying like, oh, it's actually, quote, safer because there's police everywhere because they've, they've employed massive surveillance states. But um, so there have been like, if, you know, even if there are people who are or who are preparing for um, warfare, like there are people, so there have been reports of like Uyghurs who have gone to Syria, um, you know, probably a few like a few dozen of them who are who are essentially going there with the intent of trying to be trained so they can they can um try to like essentially fight back eventually um but these these efforts are not being successful anyways um and china is using these as as excuses to essentially claim that 35 million people are prone to this extremism and so it's it's interesting because china claims that we are extremists um but what they're doing right now it, to the Uyghur people, and they, they claim that we are terrorists, but what they're doing is actually enacting terror on, on us. They're, they are right, they're the, the true terrorists. terrorists. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, like, so, so the slide that we see here 
here, um, you know, so China has essentially spent billions of dollars actually employing massive surveillance systems to monitor the actions of boilers. So you, if you go out now, if you go out on the streets, if you circus land, if you walk out of your house and say, let's say you want to go to the grocery store, you have to walk through multiple checkpoints. You have to have your ID. Your body is invasively scanned. You go through facial recognition technologies. Your, your fingerprint is scanned. You, they, they detect your voice. Um, and they also have like, you have to have like mandatory GPS devices on your car so they can track your movement. And now they've also like mandatory collected like DNA samples, retina scans and, and voice prints of Uyghur people. And so if you don't, and so going out just to run an errand is, a, is such a huge hassle to the point where even like ethnic Han who are living in East Kyrgyzstan are like sick of it. And they're like, they don't even want to go outside because they're like, this is too much. But the thing was that with ethnic Han, like even if they want to go through security, even if there are security checkpoints, there are two lanes usually. There's one lane for Uyghurs and one lane for ethnic Han. If you're ethnic Han, you just walk past. And if you're Uyghur, you are subject to these really invasive uh, surveillance technologies. Um, they also, you know, you're also, your phone, you're also, um, for your phone, you're supposed to, you're made to download this app that essentially uh, kind of goes through your phone and, and checks to see if you have any, quote, terrorism-related uh, information on it. So, for example, like, let's say you had, you know how, like, our friends, like, send us, like, photo or, like, our moms or would send us, like, photos on WhatsApp with, like, a little girl making dua or something. Yeah. Um, or, like, just, or something like, like, if on need, like, everyone's sending Eid Mubarak messages, that itself is considered a sign, like, that could actually send you to one of the concentration camps. Um, and it's, it's, so your phone is detected. Like they've sentenced um, like thousands of people to prison or these camps because, for example, they found audio recordings on an Islamic lecture, for example, or um, or someone had said assalamu alaikum in their messages. Um, and again, like these apps or the apps that they use, which is particularly WeChat, is actually monitored by the government. So there is no free space to to even engage or have a discussion uh, freely in in um, in the way they want. And so, um, yeah. And then obviously, like surveillance in oil homes and so, mosques. Yeah, and, yeah. Let's move on yeah. from the the surveillance to the actual. Okay. I mean, that we're starting off, I guess, kind of from the mildest to some of the most severe things that they're doing. Right. Tell us a little bit about what the the climate is like. I know, you, I know you said like you can't even make the mildest Islamic gesture these days. You can't even say "Assalamu alaikum" to someone. Um, yeah. And I, I think what, what kind of a, what happens essentially once you get caught by saying something that is an uh, in, in Islamic a term that's associated with Islam. So. Um... Also, one thing I wanted to mention is within the Uyghur homes, when they're surveilling, like when they're surveilling you, if they can't outright uh, show that you are in some way or form practicing religion. So, for example, if they're like, "Okay, do you believe in a god?" and you and you force yourself to say no, they'll they'll test you and be like, they'll pull out a cigarette and then they'll see your reaction to to that cigarette and to, and basically essentially force you to smoke. And if you refuse to smoke or take that cigarette, they'll, that's that's a sign for you to be sent to the camp. So essentially, what these concentration camps are and we've been mentioning this a few times since the podcast has podcast has started and i haven't been able to delve into it these concentration camps are framed by the chinese government as these re-education centers um essentially their claim is that we need to re-educate the Uyghur people because they are dangerous people who have been infected with a quote ideological illness that needs to be uh, eradicated from its roots and so um any sign that you are practicing religion 
that is a big sign for you to be sent to the camps. If you um, also another thing that is banned is actually is actually speaking our native tongue, the Uyghur language. That is now systematically banned across East Turkestan. You cannot speak it in the workplace. You cannot learn the language. You cannot uh, speak amongst your coworkers, and you are you're actually forced to speak the ethnic Han language, and, and that's called the language of the nation. Like you have to be like, oh, we're speaking the national language right now. Um, so China is essentially attempting. And, and basically in these concentration camps, they're forcing Uyghurs to, and, and not just Uyghurs, other Turkic Muslims who are living there, so Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, Uzbeks, um, and actually a few, few Hui people, they, they are forced to denounce Islam, adopt atheism, and essentially pledge, pledge allegiance to the Chinese state as God. Um, and with increasing criticism, China then claimed that these were vocational training centers, even though the majority of the d- detainees are people with well-founded careers, are, are um, you know, are retired or they're elderly. Like you have people who are 80, 90 years old who are in these camps. Well, the, view- the viewers are seeing what, what the vocational center looks like right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think yeah, uh, that looks far yeah. from any vocational center that I know of. But- yeah. Uh, exactly, and there's and there's also like young teenagers who are in these camps when or in these quote vocational training centers when in reality they should be in school. And the question is like, if these are really schools, then why are people detaining these facilities for more than two years? Like, if it's a normal school, you'd come home at the end of the day. You wouldn't be in these like prison like uh, conditions. Um, and and to be clear, so what's happening in these camps is like. You know, it's there's a clear attempt to essentially make us into Chinese people. They're trying to make us into ethnic Han. They're forcing, they're forcing people to sing Chinese propaganda poetry, um, forcing people to um, memorize and and sing certain Chinese propaganda songs. Um, even if and they they're claiming that oh we're like using these camps as a way to teach the Chinese uh, Uyghur people the Chinese language so they can better integrate into society. But what's ironic about that is that actually majority of the people who are in these camps are people who are like fluent in Chinese. Like they've grown up going to Chinese schools and and like you have like top professors, like presidents of like the university, like president of the Xinjiang Medical University, for example, was like I think recently sentenced to death. Um, or like thousands of people and hundreds of academics who are in the region and um you know, are are contributing to Chinese society in positive ways. Like they're they're people, like they're surgeons, they're academics, they're uh, you know teachers, they're uh, engineers, they're people in all sorts of fields who are being sent to these camps. And it's because it's because of one thing: it's because they're Uyghur and they have some type of influence. And and right now, China is trying to erase anything that kind of uh, sheds light on Uyghur uh, influence or into intellectual into intellectual sorry intellectual. Um, power or um, positive change in, within the community. So, um, so in these camps again, they're forced to sp- essentially speak Chinese. They claim that they they claim that oh, if once you master yeah. the Chinese language, you'll be released. And that that has been shown that it's completely false because even if they number if they do get released, it means that they are being sent to the factories that they built within these camp facilities to essentially become modern day slaves to produce uh, you know garment uh merchandise uh for companies actually some of them are here in the u.s um or they're or they're being sent to sent back home to be on 24-hour house arrest um and then the worst part about all this is the fact that these camps are essentially wired to essentially make you die at the end of it like there have been reports of well hundreds the viewers viewers are seeing some of the conditions uh, of how the uh, cells are there's 15 people in a cell 
Uh, each floor has about 28 cells. This is one of their re-education right. centers, right? right. So and- this is, yeah. So what, what you guys see on this slide right here is part of a report that was released by Bitter Winter. And essentially, this construction worker had sneaked in this camera before people were actually put into this camp to like shed light and to show how this camp was constructed. And essentially, it looks like a prison facility. Um, so in this particular camp, this is actually seems relatively better because it says 15 people are supposed to fit in a cell. Each floor has 28 cells. There's three classrooms where teacher and students are separated by an iron by iron wires. Um, uh, this, this particular facility can detain more than 15,000 people. They have iron doors in all entrance. Um, there's surveillance cameras on all cells, classrooms, toilets, and outside. So you are surveilled 24-7 even when you're using the bathroom. Um, and, and the bathroom is not even a normal bathroom. They yeah. legit put like a bucket in, in each cell and make everyone share are, it. Are um, there children? Are there children in these cells? Um, I'll get to that. So, okay. um, And then obviously next to these jails are factory buildings. Um, but yes, so the children, this is also... Uh, a really heavy aspect of this whole situation. The children of these detainees are actually being sent to orphanages and boarding schools um, where they are taught to hate their own religion, identity, and are are essentially being forcibly assimilated into the Chinese state. Um, And they are not told where their parents are. The parents don't know where the kids are. Um, They're going through immense trauma, obviously. And... uh, and, and they're being made into orphans even when their parents are still alive in these camps. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and or if they're not in these orphanages or boarding schools, they're actually being abandoned on the streets because their parents are just gone. They've just been detained like out of nowhere and and like that's it. Or they're being taken care of by like their, their like really old grandmother who has to, you know, who's like trying to feed all these young children by, her, by herself. Um, so like a lot of the towns and villages are actually, you walk through the street and it's like eerily empty. It's eerily silent because it's just, everyone is like gone now. Like shops have been closed down. Houses have been closed down because there's no one actually inhabiting these homes. Um, but, you know, going back to the actual concentration camps, I wanted to also touch base on some of the torture happening in these camps. And um, if you want to change the slide to that so you can uh, yeah. have more specifics, but essentially in these camps, uh, the detainees are being subject to horrible, horrible forms of torture and eventual death. So women are being forcibly sterilized. They're being raped. Um, uh, people are being lethally injected. Actually, one of my relatives was uh, lethally injected November 2017. And we found out the summer after that he had passed away and when he when he when he passed away we actually thought he we found out the summer after that he actually passed away in the camps but when he we found out in november that he had died we had we didn't know that he was even in the camp and then we found out later it was through injection um people are being subject to organ harvesting um which is a huge industry within china now they take these prisoners or detainees and who are healthy and they essentially use these bodies to uh to take all the organs and uh, and, and use them essentially to make money. Um, and then obviously in that process, these, these bodies are being killed. And what's crazy about this whole thing is that even people, and when people die, their bodies are not taken to their families, but rather the bodies are actually cremated in order to hide the evidence of bodies coming out of these camps. And it's also a way, another way, another way to subvert the Islamic tradition of burying bodies alive. I mean, sorry, burying bodies. Um, cause we know cremation like is not part of the Islamic tradition. Um, but that's an, again another way to like 
not give us a clear idea of how many people are dying. Um, so you just, we just had an image of a sister who was detained and what she suffered through. How, how did we find out about her? Did she get out? Did she escape? Like what, what's her story? This is the, uh, sister who it doesn't mention her name, but, um, she, she seems like it was, uh, two of her brothers were executed in front of three, her. Three, three. Two in front of her, third one was also executed. Yeah. Her father yeah. died. Her mother died at home. Yeah, are, are she, she was uh, raped. Was she someone who escaped from? from yeah, that's what I was asking. So I actually don't know her story that much. This is, I, I just was focusing on the torture methods, but right. I believe she's actually in, either in Turkey or in Canada. I believe she's in Turkey and she has been opened up for, um, opened herself up for like giving testimony and like showing exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, but you can see through some of the things that they do, like uh, in other than the the physical torture, like the forced indoctrination that they go through, they're forced to shout Communist Party Akbar. So they're essentially replacing yeah. uh, Allah with Communist Party, um, and uh, or um, and then they would like humiliate them by saying like, okay, call your God if like he if your God is really going to save you. Yeah. Um, and I mean, uh, I mean, she well, shows a lot of the scars on her body as well. There, there was a, another sister you were uh, sending. Yeah. You gave us some information about who um, I think she, her identity is much more uh, open. And I'm just pulling yeah. that up for them right now. But can you tell us a little bit about uh, Sister Tursan? Uh, sorry, um, mm-hmm. mi- mi- I'm not going to pronounce this right. Mirgul Tursan. This year is a shot. In yeah, Mirgul Tursan. Yeah. Um, so she. Her story, you know, we actually invited her a few weeks ago to come to Duke to actually talk on her experiences. And it was crazy because there were counter protests by Chinese international students who were essentially passing out flyers or sorry, passing out articles claiming that everything that she was stating was a lie and that she was just um, and that she was detained because she was inciting ethnic hatred between ethnic Han and Uyghurs. Um, so that was that was an interesting experience. But she so Mehrgul Torson is a a uh, 29-year-old Uyghur woman who uh, spent three, time, three times in, in Chinese detention. And she was actually living in Egypt, um, studying there um, to, to, to get her master's. And she got married, she got pregnant, and she gave birth to triplets. And after she gave birth to triplets, she figured that it, it was really hard to take care of her, the babies on her own while her husband was at work. So she decided to go back to East Turkestan to have her mom help raise the kids or raise the babies when they're at such a young age because there were three babies at once. And as soon as she goes back to East Turkestan, um, she immediately gets detained. She takes the babies are taken away from her, and and um, she's this is when her this is when she's first detained in 2015, and and at this point her babies are around two three months old. And she eventually gets released a, like a like a, just sometime later um, because they claim that like okay your your children are sick now one of them is in critical condition especially and they bring her to like outside of this room where they can, she can see her child in an incubator and her and it's and it's like lifeless like she can't she can't go near it and the next day they say oh your baby didn't make it and they they claim, they told her that they operated on these babies first she she had asked like what how did my baby die and they didn't tell her why 
And she later found out they had operated on her three babies through medical experimentation. Mm-hmm. And to this day, she still doesn't know exactly what she, what she did to um, her three kids. And one of them obviously had passed away. And, and at the time that she was detained, like <coughs> the first she was first detained, her kids were her babies were healthy. So um, I remember you know, reading the story. Yeah. yeah, I remember this. Yeah, it's very yeah, heartbreaking. So the yeah, and so she, you know, they essentially murder her her child and and. <clears throat> um, She's, you know, taken to house arrest and taking detention once more. Um, and then just basically she and she goes through these these forms of torture. She gets electrically shocked. It's sent, sent to solitary confinement for seven days. Um, she's um, one of the psychological forms of torture that they use is they claim that like, oh, your mom, your dad and your like family have all died or they have or like some of them have been sent to prison because of you like we've killed them because of you and and that it wasn't true at the time obviously because like it, it was just a way for her to like um you know uh, answer the the questions that they were interrogating her with um but essentially she goes through these forms of torture she, and then she claims that within her second or third detention i'm forgetting the exact moment but she she talked about how there were 68 women in her cell and how nine women within three months had died in front of her, um, either through not being medically treated, through torture, through psychological, like there's one lady who, and she was talking about how they would be forced to take pills that would, that would like cause them to stop bleeding for menstruation, or they would, or it would cause some woman to bleed heavily. Um, it would cause one woman had seized in front of her and they just dragged the woman away and like took her away. And that was it. Um, there are people Sorry, it's yeah. like really heavy yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, take um, a break because, uh, you know, it's it's heartening as much as it's painful for me to see you get emotional about it. But um, from people from my uh, my generation, I don't know, I'm like late 30s, early 40s people who grew up in uh, the time of Bosnia and, and Chechnya. And when a lot of these uh, types of genocides were taking place, sadly, a lot of us have kind of gone, become indifferent and we've kind of lost our humanity. And that's why I think many of them today don't, I mean, you'll see a lot of practicing Muslims, you know, take the causes, take up causes like, you know, uh, Black Rights Matter and and, and as they should. You know, there's some great, um, um, amazing things that you, you can partake in, but you see that there's a lot of, yeah. Um. There's people who just have gone indifferent to the genocide of Muslims, and it's very painful to see that um, that people just don't care anymore, and and yeah. and yeah. we lost our sense of humanity, Aiden, and and we, we yeah. need to get that back. I and and it's it's like a it's it's a situation where we're kind of resigned to our fate. You remember when the when the Mongols you hear about a lot of the stories about the Mongols and I don't know if you've read some of these stories but the the people mm-hmm. when when the Mongols were attacking the Muslims in, in the in in Persia and in Baghdad the people were just resigned to their fate. They're like go ahead and kill us and we, they just laid down their swords and this is kind of the situation that we're in right now that people are are just so defeated that you know what I'm not even going to pay attention to things like genocide i'm not gonna even talk about it it's not worth my effort it's not even worth a tweet it's not worth spreading my uh, spreading uh spreading (coughs) spreading this information on social media something that costs you nothing no and then muslims like these days were not even organized enough i remember when that article came out saying that 
China is now calling Islam a mental illness. Um, I remember some of the Muslim, the U.S. Muslim organizations were trying to get everybody to sign a statement together. You know, um, all these mental health organizations, Muslim mental health organizations, sign a statement together saying this is not right. You know that to, that our government needs to say something. You know that you can't call religion, you know, a mental illness and whatnot, but we could even get our Muslims organized enough to sign a simple document or put a simple document together. But, um, I, I wanted to say like, so what can we do as Muslims? Like we see, like, I know that I think I was reading one of your articles, but, um, it was basically saying that, you know, a lot of countries have tried to say something, but, they have so many economic ties to China that they're kind of um, in a bind. Like they're, they're, they're financially, they're like, oh, we can only say so much, but, you know, we've got all our money tied up with China right now. So we're and sadly, have that's to the turn case. Another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, well, how do you feel about like fellow um, Turks, you know, people who are, you know, leaders of NATO, like, Erdogan and in Turkey, you know, be largely silent. I mean, they, there might be a couple words of support that comes here and there, but largely these guys have so much money tied to China. Their their economies are so dependent on, on Chinese interests that they're largely silent. They won't they won't do anything. Yeah, so that's that's definitely been one of the greatest frustrations we as Uyghur activists or the community has faced is witnessing the absolute silence on this genocide that we see. Like they, we see 21st century concentration camps being built and holding like three to five million people in these camps and they're being essentially sentenced to death um, or enforced to become Chinese or, or essentially die and we see this happening and we have enough evidence. There's literally satellite imagery showing the construction of these camps. And we've located at, at least 1,200 camps within East, all of East Turkestan. And there's still more to be found. Um, and we have testimonies of thousands of people being, uh, of, of thousands of testimonies being released of people like trying to shed light on the fact that their mom or dad or grandfather is missing and that they haven't had contact with anyone there um, to to figure out if they're even alive or dead. And so this kind of crisis has been so, so taxing like to the Uyghur diaspora community, obviously to people there, like you can't, words can't even describe how horrific the atrocities are there because even if, if you're not in the camps obviously you are um it's you're still like in it's like a dungeon because everything you're monitored you're not allowed to speak your own language you're not allowed to practice your religion you're 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 like always on the verge of eventually being sent to a camp so going back to the pinpoint of you know the silence of muslim majority of of countries in general actually um specifically for the longest time every single muslim majority country was silent um even when they knew about these atrocities occurring and so um and, and again, it was be- it's largely mainly because of their economic ties to China and the fact that China is using the One Belt, One Road initiative, which is a multi-trillion dollar um, uh, initiative started by the Chinese government in 2013 to essentially create like uh, 
basically like routes along Central Asia and like the maritime routes to Africa to essentially uh, harness like this economic power over these countries and to claim that they are these countries are going to be getting these like really easy loans and that this would help their economy and that this is a good way to bridge relations between team China and these countries. So a lot of these countries like Pakistan, uh, so many countries in Africa, um, even Turkey and and so much of these countries that have been like very pressured by trying to remain absolutely silent. So I remember when um, uh, Pakistan had actually said a statement expressing concern over the camp saying like, and they try to stay in a more low key and a more low key way saying like, Hey, this is not the way to deal with extremists. Like there's actually a better way, but that was their way of trying to like, like kind of help out China, but a way that in a way that like would like lessen the repression towards us. And when they make this claim that China essentially forced them to retract that statement and say that that, that never, that would never, that was never said. But most recent news, alhamdulillah, this is, you know, something that has uh, was positive within our community was, um, uh, you know, two weeks ago, actually China, I mean, Turkey finally broke its silence and, and criticized China for its, um, for its, for these camps. And what had sparked that to break that silence was the, was the fact that there was rumor going around stating that one of the prominent Uyghur musicians had been uh, killed in, uh, in Chinese prison. And that was like a huge, and this, this Uyghur musician is known throughout the Turkic world. Um, he had gone to Turkey multiple times to give performances. People in Turkey love him. And so when they heard that he had died, um, that was just like, that, that drew the line for Turkey. And they, they essentially, finally spoke out it, and so it true? But that created, is it true or was it a so so that this is this is interesting this is you know for a while like all of us even myself we all thought okay yeah he died and I, I even shared on my social media that he had passed away and then the next day china actually released a video a supposed video showing abdurim hate the singer um alive by and in, basically in the video he's like forced to say like you know today is february 10th 2019 mm. um you know uh i'm here in detention i'm alive um but i have not been abused and i just want everyone to know that i'm fine right yeah. um but that video itself was really like iffy because as soon as i remember soon as soon as i watched it like you can see like the mouth didn't really sync up with the the audio and oh then people God. who are doing research like was realizing the video and the audio were a little bit off and and there's actually like uh you know like ai there's like certain forms yeah. of yeah oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. where yeah, you can actually like just make it seem like it well, actually, actually looks pretty like easy it's, yeah. it's not very complicated but it just, it looked, my first instinct was that this is fake or even if it's real like what if this is china's way of like maybe they had reported this video before they had actually killed him and then they as because they knew they were going to expect this outrage from yeah. the international community wow. and to release this video to make us look bad and to like decrease our credibility and be like hey look at these oilers they love to spread lies about us look at them spreading fake news um yeah. and look where he's alive and he's okay but either way it looked it looked bad on part of their part because they're like either way it's like why are you detaining a musician right because of his music like obviously you see him as a threat yeah. um so there was good that come out came out of it either way because from that video that was released this launched the hashtag me too campaign which essentially as a social media campaign where Uyghurs kind of uh you know wrote hashtag me too Uyghur and then asked and they were like Whereas if you can release a video of Abdurim hates alive, then show me, show my, show the video of my mom alive or show my, the video of my uh, uncle alive right. or in these camps. Yeah. So that yeah. created like, it was a massive scene. <clears throat> this type was just recently? Like this month? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's still going. It's still ongoing. Last like it was. Weeks? 
yeah, so it's two weeks ago that this rumor um, that he had passed away was oh. spreading, and then um, that campaign kind of exploded. And it's still going on now. Like if you search it up on Twitter, it's you'll see lots of um, testimonies being released of people. Um, no, no, well, we're, we're, no. You're you're studying things like international relations and stuff at at a prestigious yeah. university such as Duke. But when you see um, the United States using North Korea to leverage uh, pressure. Uh, on, on China, but not using the plight of the Uyghurs. Well, well, what's your analysis on that? What do you What do you think about that? Um, so the United States is actually using the plight of the Uyghurs as a way to uh, to like advance their their agenda against China. So they're using so like you have far right far right congressmen who like support the Muslim ban, who support the the you know the the wall that's supposed to be built that's that they're trying to build in, Mex- mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. Mexico-American border, people who are supporting these family separation policies. These these right congressmen who are supporting this, they're, they're ironically, but not surprisingly, shedding light on the fact that China is detaining like millions of people in these camps, and they're yeah. and they're talking about the human rights violation. They're they're focusing a lot of a lot of um, their issues on human rights within China. They also talk, focus a lot on Tibet as well. They pro- they've provided funding. They've recently provided thirty million dollars in funding for uh, you know the Tibetan exile, uh, the exile community. Um, and um, Trump recently signed a bill to essentially allow journalists and and um, foreigners to into to uh, enter the Tibetan region in order to shed light on the human rights abuses occurring. So it's interesting because the Trump administration, this is one issue that they're actually um, they're actually talking about, and they're using this as a way to they're kind of using any chance that they yeah, can get to. Of course, I mean, China, it's not like, like it's using it's using you know it's we're we're benefiting off of it, obviously. Right. This is we, how we they are, yeah they play politics. They don't genuinely care about the plight of yeah. North Koreans or or right. the, or, yeah. or the, the Uyghurs. It's just a, a way that they. They can they can put the squeeze on on China for their own uh, negotiations and, and things like that, and, and yeah. uh, you you heard about that as well when initially uh, Trump was talking about challenging the challenging the one China policy, and uh, they, they that kind of got them very upset. What recently um, I remember there was someone in our community that um, was afraid to speak out about Uyghurs because he has family. Do you know what I'm talking about? Someone has family over there and they were mm-hmm. like, it's yeah. it's very dangerous. So can you talk about that a little bit? Like as being a Muslim here, a Uyghur here, how does that affect, you know? Well, there, there's there's Muslim Han Chinese Muslims in America right. who are passionately for the, 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 the Uyghur situation, but they can't say anything because yeah. they have family abroad. Talk a little bit so about they that. They might not be Uyghur, they're Han. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're, yeah. Yeah. So... This is also a big issue within our community is like, like even when we have demonstrations or protests in, in front of the White House or wherever or in front of a Chinese embassy, there are actually Uyghurs who, you know, choose not to go because they are afraid of being um, reported by essentially informants who mm-hmm. could either be Uyghur or Chinese. And they essentially send their names to back to the Chinese government and the Chinese government then questions their family members and it potentially detains them or sends them, sends them to camps. Um, so this is a real issue that actually happens and has a lot, has made a lot of Uyghurs remain silent about their missing family members. But with increasing time, I think people have started to realize that staying silent actually does worse um, and, and doesn't actually, doesn't actually do any good. So for example, there is one example of a prominent scholar. Her name is Riley Dawood. She's, um, 
she's done amazing research on like for example like sufism within east Turkestan. and she's even herself she had actually been detained for for months and she's still in detainment right now she's still disappeared and her family had decided to remain silent for i think eight months or six or eight months um until they finally realized that staying silent wasn't actually going to do anything they thought that staying silent would actually would enable her to eventually be released but then people were like okay if everyone stays silent then the world is not going to know about how horrible these atrocities are occurring and like to what extent so people have been speaking out and actually there have been there have been instances where prominent like like activists that i know who've been like vouching for the release of their parents have actually eventually seen their parents get released or they haven't seen them but they've they've heard that their parents have been released so one of them um is a guy is a doctor from uh finland or the netherlands but he's his name is Halmorat, and his parents were detained in these camps and he we got the news that in december after after months and months of activism and and you know, spreading light on the fact that his parents were detained, they were eventually released. But unfortunately, that release simply means like house arrest. Like it doesn't really mean that much. But, um, but it has been doing some like. But some how, so, how does that work? How does that work? Is it he's putting pressure on the Finnish government or to? Uh, how does so he's work? essentially like he's essentially raising awareness in the entire world about like so the atrocities using and being like social media. Yeah, using his use, yeah using social media. So he's actually the one who started the hashtag Me Too Uyghur campaign as mm. well. Um, and has been using, um, just like, just going, putting myself out there, honestly, he was just like, everyone needs to know that my parents are in these camps and the fact that there's like millions of other people in these camps. Um, and so the hashtag me too, campaign actually made a lot of people go out finally onto camera and, and give testimonies. Um, wow. so and, but the thing is obviously testimony is still very limited. Like there's only a few thousand testimonies that have been released, but like, but in, if you put a few thousand versus like like three million for example that's like nothing right no. there's yeah. still so many people who aren't being represented whose names aren't being put out um who are being killed off every day in these camps well, so I'm my, sh- sorry i was yeah. just gonna ask Go ahead. oh i was gonna ask a question because I, my parents went to china just a few years ago it wasn't too many it was two or three years ago i feel like mm-hmm. um and they went to you know all the big cities shanghai beijing whatever and then they went to um the han area and they you know the Muslim, you know, Chinese were there and they had halal food and all that stuff. So is that so today if a Muslim, if tourists were to go there, what would they experience? So, okay, so if you this is something that a lot of people push back on, they're like, oh, like Islam, what do you mean Islam is forbidden? Like I go to China all the time and like there's masjids, there's halal food and everyone's super friendly. There's a lot of Chinese Muslims practicing. But that situation is that particular like occurrence is allowed in in mainland China. So the Hui Muslims, like Chinese Muslims, are okay. able to practice religion, right? Although there have been increasing crackdown lately on like on um, religious practice, like they've destroyed a couple mosques in in um, in mainland China. Um, but generally, like religious freedom is allowed, and there isn't necessarily this problem of dealing with these, or like Hui Muslims aren't being rounded up into concentration camps, for example, and that's because there isn't like a territorial um, like issue here. There isn't territory territorial um, uh, fight here, mm-hmm. um, whereas with the Uyghurs there is, and obviously there's like the quote threat of what they claim is like everyone here is like basically um, uh, suspect to being terrorists. Yeah. But um, 
But uh, going back to, so if, if a tourist or a foreigner were to try to enter the East Turkestan region specifically, honestly, right now, they've actually been driving a lot of foreigners out of the region. It's like really hard to go to China in the first place. Um, you know, people who've gone there have like written blog articles about how they would, you know, try to go to um, like, they'd, they'd be going to Qashqar, for example, and then they would try to stay at a hotel and they would basically turn them away saying that there's no space in the hotel, even though they know there, even though there are space, there is space and essentially turn them away. And, you know, we, we were active as we, we, you know, we kind of guess that this is a way to kind of hide the genocide that they're, that they're carrying out. They know journalists and everyone is, it, this is a hot topic for a lot of the world right now. And even journalists who try to enter the region, they're being turned away. There have been like documentaries, like people have been creating documentaries to like try to shed light on what's happening. And the entire documentary has essentially been shifted to be about how the fact that they were monitored the entire time they were in uh, East Turkestan. Like there was, there would be like a black car following them everywhere they went. Um, and essentially, as soon as they tried interviewing people or they try to get more insight into the concentration camps, they would be turned away and stopped or the material would be confiscated. So if you go as a, so there are actually lots of ethnic Han tourists, like, so Chinese people within China going to East Turkestan, um, they go to these, they go to our region and our mosques have like been turned into cultural propaganda centers. They're completely empty now. And they've been, uh, some of them have been turned into bars um, mm. where people, yeah, where people can drink alcohol. Um, worst forms of cultural appropriation happening. You have ethnic Han like literally posing in Uyghur homes that have been emptied out because the people, the inhabitants of these homes have been sent to camps. And they're like, oh, look how beautiful their furniture is, their culture is, like this is how they set up to eat. Um, so they're using like our culture as a way to to, to make these profits. Um, the, our Sufi shrines have been completely uh, you know, shut down or like on, you can't access them unless you're a tourist and you go and you get to tour these, these facilities. Um, but, and then there's like Chinese people who have like taken the Uyghur food, which is like, I don't know if you guys have ever tried Uyghur food, but it's a lot of people love it, especially people in China. I, I honestly, like a lot of my friends too, who aren't Uyghur, but, um, they've taken our foods and like essentially built Uyghur restaurants run by Han Chinese and the waiters are Han Chinese and then they turn away Uyghurs who like enter the, the restaurant. Um, so they're like making profit off of the food of Uyghurs while like a cultural, while at the same time like a cultural genocide and wow. an actual genocide is taking place. Yeah, like um, your, I mean your Uyghur food is looks amazing. I haven't had it yet but I mean I see... Yeah, the uh, pulled noodles yeah. and right hand pulled noodles. Uh, There's a great uh, Uyghur restaurant I think yeah. somewhere in San Francisco um or California oh, yeah, somewhere, but yeah, a lot of people talk about that yeah. one restaurant. But as soon as I have the chance, I think my I one of my friends just traveled to Uzbekistan, and I believe she went to one there. Yeah, and then there's one. Yeah. I know we have Boys in the Cave podcast. They have they've got one in Melbourne. So yeah, I mean, I would love to find one so that we can go and try yeah. it out. Yeah. Well, well, uh, I I don't know if you wanted to show that side, but I wanted to ask like, what can Muslims in the West do? Like, what can we do? And we're not, you know, as non-Uyghur, like just regular Muslims, um, what can we do to help, you know, put pressure or just help the plight of our fellow Muslims in East Turkestan? Yeah. So the first step and the first step is actually raising awareness because unfortunately, even to this day, even with you have, even when you have like explosion of media about these camps they're still like i would say majority of the world still doesn't know that this is happening um and i think the biggest um 
And, and that's the number one step is raising awareness and talking about how horrible the situation is. Cause I think it's usually just kind of brushed over. Um, like uh, if you guys have read 1984, like the Orwellian yeah. state that you see in that, in, the, in that society, like it's essentially like the same, if not, yeah, if not worse. I mean, cause Orwellian state there in the 1984, there weren't camps as well, but now you have what we see in East Turkestan is unprecedented unprecedented you haven't seen this in any parts of the world like to to the extent where there's concentration camps there's massive surveillance states state there's uh you know technology being employed to essentially like to like control your every movement um it's it's you know it's 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 really and it's really sad because there's not again there's like so hard to like get evidence of like physical evidence of all of this because like journalists can't like really freely report on this issue and so the way we were finding out is like through things like satellite imagery people who've lived there and escaped um and then like just getting information from those who from like chinese people who work there or like live there um but sorry yeah so so, so, yeah so so you were saying about what um, so yeah, so raising awareness is number one. Um, so use social media as a tool. Um, uh, you guys can follow. There's a bunch of Uyghur activists and Uyghur organizations that you can follow to get uh, updated. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook. My Twitter and Facebook are solely dedicated to this cause. I only post things related to this issue. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter. It's my name, Aiden Anwar underscore A Y D I N. A-N-W-A-R underscore. That's my Twitter. And then on Facebook, it's just my first and last name, Aiden Anwar. So you can follow me on t- Twitter and Facebook and, and keep updated um, with with the current um, occurrences there. Um, and then in addition to that, in terms of like, actual action items, um, so Congress actually introduced a bill, and this was drafted by um, Senator Marco Rubio and a few others, to, and it's called the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act of 2019. And essentially this act is, if passed, is going to focus on trying to sanction Chinese officials for their crimes against humanity um, and uh, demand the release of people from these camps and ensure like religious um ensure religious freedoms and other human rights. Because right now, like our focus is, is like trying to like make people breathe freely because right now it's just like there's absolutely no freedom whatsoever and what's interesting is that china actually calls our region the xinjiang Uyghur autonomous region which in the name itself is super ironic because number one right now they're trying to erase everything that makes up who Uyghurs are and number two it's not autonomous in any way shape or form and then again xinjiang is also one of those names that was used to rename our territory which we find offensive we encourage we also encourage the international community to not use the term xinjiang and to not feed into that to that narrative and and to really just call it East Turkestan as as a way to uplift the Uyghur voice and and really shed light on the correct name of our territory, um, and then do, do, you, do, so, you, do you do you do you think that China um, uses that to its advantage, like perhaps you know furthering its narrative that you know what these Uyghurs are trying to create this independent nation called East Turkestan, right? Um, do you, do you think that could backfire possibly? I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. So calling it Xinjiang really does help their narrative because when you say, okay, yeah, I'm from Xinjiang, it sounds like you're from China and that you're like Chinese and, and Xinjiang actually means new territory, which is funny because when people say like, oh, Xinjiang has always been a part of China, like the name itself, like says the opposite, you know, (laughs) Um, yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. So it's like, um, so yeah, they definitely, you know, uh, use that as part of their narrative. And 
that's interesting is that even calling saying the name East Turkestan or Sharqi Turkestan in the region or in China itself that can like lead you to like imprisonment um, or like a death sentence. So it's like we haven't you can't even say the name East Turkestan. You can't even have the flag or see the flag ever. So a lot of people who lived there their whole life and have never gone out they've they've never even heard of the term Sharqi Turkestan or East Turkestan or uh, have seen the the flag of our nation before. Um, so. Um, Yeah, so in regards to the question about independence, they do see, you know, East Turkestan, by calling East Turkestan, they see it as like you saying a political statement and you you showing your support for an independent um, East Turkestan. Um, And so there have been independence movements, you know, outside of the U.S. that have been promoting peaceful means of attaining independence with the narrative being that, you know, was we're an occupied territory and we have the right to to end this occupation. uh so but china has used that as a you know as a has used this particular um movement to, uh, to further crack down on Uyghurs. unfortunately it's saying that okay look these people exist and it's because of these people that you guys are being coming quote radicalized and why we need you why we need you why we need to put you into um these like re-education facilities and basically rewire your mind and re-engineer your body and your and the way you think um do you, do you think a, a boycott of some sort would work? Um, I know some people yeah. like on Twitter have been calling for a Chinese boycott. And I was kind of curious because, um, I mean, as much as I would love for a boycott to work in this type of situation, it just seems like uh, in a, a very difficult goal um, because of how much comes, yeah. uh, how much how much product in our, that, that comes from China into our families, right? Yeah. And into our households. Yeah, I would definitely say, um, yeah, that's something that even I struggle with. And I'm like, yeah, we can say boycott China all as much as you want. But literally everything's made in China. Like everyone has iPhones nowadays yeah. and those are all made in China. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, having more practical means of boycotting is really important. Uh, but also like everyone should still take make the effort to boycott and also keep well, in mind of the company that are operating um, within East Turkestan, there was actually um, an article released talking about the five top 500 companies that are operating and creating business in East Turkestan. Some of, some of these uh, companies have been directly complicit in the genocide and ethnic cleansing of the Uyghur people. Um, one of them, you know, so the, I mentioned how there are factories being built within these concentration camp facilities and how, um, you know, the manufacturers like was, was traced back to um, sport. I've, it's called, I think, sports sportswear or sports yeah. gear. Um, and it was based in North Carolina. And basically, this this company essentially is what produces like the jerseys for uh, college athletes to um, to to wear. And uh, with pressure, we you know people are saying boycott this company because they're essentially being created by modern day slaves who are essentially subject to ethnic cleansing. And um, alhamdulillah, they, I think they stopped. They they um, yeah. released a statement saying that they stopped. They stopped their their relations with our business in China. Um, Eric Prince, um, that's another huge one that's been coming about, about his, his businesses in China. Um, and we've been trying to come up with uh, ways to pressure. Um, Wait, who? Pressure Eric Prince. Oh, Eric. Uh, he's, yeah. Um, he's, who is he? he's a, an American businessman. And he okay. is, um, I think, has a really pretty generally like a bad reputation in terms of the business that he's carried out. But one of the things that he's been doing is creating, is, is creating business in East Turkestan, the East Turkestan region itself and directly getting profit off of it. And, um, 
you know, uh, being super close to these camps and being remaining silent about it. Um, so he's he's been one person that's been kind of uh, getting a, a little bit of pressure and criticism for. Um, so we're we're trying to you know create like uh, <laughs> essentially initiatives to block off businesses that are happening because these are all complicit. Also, another big thing is like pressuring universities if they have strong ties with China, which is a high likelihood to essentially pressure university to cut off ties with China um, and, and really shed light. So within my university, for example, Duke actually has campus um, in China. It's called the Duke Kunshan University. And because of their relations with China, like they've essentially remained silent on this whole issue. And so when I, if, when I organized this event a few weeks ago on the plight of the Uyghurs, um, and that was my attempt to like try to break that silence and really like shed light and make Duke like no longer silent and to really like make this a, a vital conversation that's taking place because like the and I feel like China really cares about its relationships with especially like elite universities and I know Cornell for example recently cut off their um, their ties with uh, the the Chinese institute that they have um, because of like human rights abuses and academic freedom and like restrictions on academic freedoms. Um, And so these are huge moves. They they may seem small, but they're huge in the sense that China will, I feel like with, with more and more action taking place like this, like China will eventually like see its impact because they send, you know, they have like thousands and thousands of Chinese international students who are studying in these American universities. Um, And, you know, if, if these universities are not in, are not taking part in this conversation at all and are pretending like it's not happening, then these universities are complicit. And Duke is honestly one of them. And that's yeah. been one of my greatest frustrations being a student here is like, I'm the only Uyghur person on this campus. And it also feels super isolating and very frustrating to know like, oh my God, like my, my relatives are in these camps. They're being tortured every single day. I don't even know if they're alive or dead. Meanwhile, my, my university is like functioning a whole campus in China. They're taking so much pride in it. They're pretending like everything's okay. And and like, I'm like, wow, like, I, I promise you within like 20 years, let's say this genocide is taking out to its full extent, inshallah, it's not, that does not happen. But if in the case it does, we're going to be building like a Holocaust museum for the Oilers. And then we're going to be like, oh my God, how did this happen? How did we not know? Yeah. Um, you know, why didn't anyone do about anything about it? And that's essentially how the Holocaust took place. Everyone knew it was happening and then no one just, no one actually took the action to, to stop what was happening. So yeah. I, I have this like really, it's... No, no, I mean, so that, that's exactly like, really how... Dark how... vision of the future and like how... I feel like a, muse- a museum will definitely be created. Be like, oh my god, this is the genocide of the Uyghurs. Like, how did this happen? Or yeah. concentration camps, you know? Like, and I'm just like, yeah, but it's happening right now, and we still have the chance to do something about it. But like, yeah. look, you have, you have yeah. trying to buy plants. Money it really just, you know, messes you, everything up. Do you? Yeah, of course. And that's the main thing. You see, um, all kinds of causes kind of getting brushed under the rug, even like just things related to BDS or even criticizing Saudi Arabia for its relationships with the, uh, with all kinds of, you know, shady characters, but, um, all, whether you're Muslim or non-Muslim, all leaders are silent because they have, uh, financial stakes Mm -hmm. in, in these countries and they, they don't want to hurt those stakes. Mm And I think it's very important that, Muslim young Muslims start, start getting more aware of that and start putting more pressure on their leaders that hey, you know what we understand you have some kind of relationship in this country, but uh, you're gonna you should if you want to be our voice, you better be prepared to take a stand on things that 
might not be the best in, in the best interest of your wallet, you know? Yeah. Someone in the chat actually said, I have some businesses with factories in China and I can cancel them and tell them why. But such an action seems so irrelevant and small. What's the best action to take? But I think no action is too small, right? Or, if we yeah, have a bunch, a bunch of people. Yeah. Yeah. But doing- organizing, I, th- I think, or I mean, just imagine if um, Chicago had someone like Aiden here. Uh, and I, I know there's so many active MSAs in Chicago. It's a very, uh, it's, a, it's a hub for a lot of active young Muslims. And, and if we could have a contact like that, to perhaps bring more attention to the issue because people don't want to talk about something and, and look silly about it. And if they had someone like you, they would be able to perhaps bring this to an uh, 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 to some sort of platform and make a make an issue about it, right? Yeah. 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 Someone else I see in the chat um, asked, my university has some very close relationships with China. What can I do? Is it just holding an event or speaking to management? Um, I think it can be a, a variety of things. I think the biggest thing is actually mobilization, like finding a group of people. Like if you are part of an MSA, um, like for example, I, I'm president of MSA at Duke and like I use that as a way to like basically get funding to like create that event that I've always wanted to do. Um, like and, and like inviting media over uh, and, and, and actually speaking to administration and bring this issue to light and be like, yo, there's like literally people being slaughtered and like or being like subject to ethnic cleansing um, in China. And we're really, we're maintaining these, these tight relations with this institute that we have. Um, so can we like, at least say like actually I think a big step is actually like if the university can say something that's a huge step forward because China really like does care about its image and um like when Turkey like criticized China for example two weeks ago like that really upset China and so if these universities can at least say something or brings issue to light and pretend like not just gloss over as if nothing is happening that is a first step and so um Uh, you know if if this person wants to you know uh honestly they could even do it themselves to like set up an appointment with a few administrators and bring really talk about how important this issue is um that's the first step but i think mobilizing organizations bring again raising awareness on campus and do keep in mind that it's going to be kept it's going to be definitely met with backlash from people from china um who are who are pro-government um but that's just part of the fight you just keep going and and and, and say the truth because yeah yeah. Well, 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 one of the main things that a lot of people need to understand is it's not necessarily um, the net result of your action that you see. You just right. by you creating noise and, and having uh, some of these countries get, uh, you know, get shaken a little bit by their by, by by them trying to preserve their their pristine image. A lot of businesses who are multinational corporations before they invest in any country, they look at the stability of a, of a, of a country and they want to make sure that they're investing uh, or they're setting up a factory or whatever kind of business in a country that is stable. And when you challenge right. the stability of a nation, that pisses people off. And I think you right. don't don't underestimate your effort in, yeah. in spreading the message because just <clears throat> projecting that kind of image of China as a a country that is committing genocide and in uh, a, uh, a holocaust of sort uh, on uh, ethnic user Uyghur Muslims, you're you're just doing a huge service right right there. But and, and tweets, Facebook posts, they're free. Yeah. They don't cost you anything. So mm-hmm. go out there exactly. and, and and spread the word. 
Yeah, and also shameless plug. Um, so there's two things. There's a huge protest um, for the Oilers, I believe, on April 6th in D.C. Um, so if you're in the area, do come out to that. And I think if you search it up, it'll definitely come up on Google. Google, um, that's inshallah going to be a huge step forward in terms of mobilizing large groups of people. Um, and also another one is I, so actually uh, around a month ago, I launched a campaign with a few of my friends um, on Launch Good. It's a crowdfunding um, campaign for, for uh, crowdfunding, yeah, for, sorry, crowdfunding campaign to support Uyghur women and orphans in um in Turkey, because I, when I had gone to Turkey the past three times, every single time I'd witnessed the extreme financial distress that they were going through because their family members were either in the concentration camps, in prison, had been killed, had disappeared. Um, and obviously they're enduring this like massive, this horrible trauma. And like the least we could, and I was like, the least we can do is at least alleviate some of their financial stresses. Yeah. And because we cannot, we can't help people directly in East Turkestan, I figured like, we can at least try to help those in diaspora and the refugees. So I started a co- that campaign and alhamdulillah, it's already reached like $72,000, um, but it's still open. And uh, we encourage everyone, if you type in Google on Google, like support Uyghur women and orphans in Turkey on Google, it should come up. And um, I encourage everyone to donate and share this campaign. Yeah. Um, it's an ongoing campaign and I'm going to be working also going to be on the ground, delivering a lot of these funds directly to the refugees um, and to the women and orphans and seeing how it's being of impact. Um, and you know, 70 like in dollars trend, if you like convert that into Turkish leaders, it's, it's, I would say it's a lot more, that's a lot of money. So, yeah. um, you know, if, if this money can be, uh, you know, kept sustainable and like ongoing, cause it's eventually going to end. Um, I encourage everyone to support. Um, What's support the best way a, a, a someone who's young, MSA student in part of their university, who should they reach out to if they're trying to get a hold of uh, an a Uyghur rights activist? Should they reach out to you directly, or sh- should they go to a an organization that you would recommend? Is there is there an an organization you would recommend? Because you see a lot of them on Twitter, but you're not sure yeah. who's yeah. who you should actually support. Yeah. So. Um, Definitely, like if you want to reach out to me directly, I'm uh, I'm open. You guys can message me on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. I have my messages open, um, and I try my best to respond back to everyone and direct them to other people or other organizations that can help out. Um, especially specifically with like MSA, uh, like event planning or like figuring out who to invite. Like I I encourage people to just directly reach out to me and I'll respond because I've had people uh, reach out to me and ask me those specific questions and like what to talk about and like how how to arrange the the event. Um, and, you know, I, I'm also like, I'm also open to like going and speaking at these universities. If, if that's something that people, if they want someone to speak, you know, I can, I'm definitely open to that. Um, awesome. But in terms of like organizations, there's actually multiple ones. There are some, there's different approaches that some organizations take. So there's one, there are like ones that are like, uh, you know, who openly promote like independence of East Turkestan and that could be like something easy as like the East Turkestan government in exile, the East Turkestan national awakening movement. Um, and then there's ones that are, t- that are focused more on like uh, that are not openly promoting independence and their, their whole premise is like human rights and autonomy um, and you know, that approach and they're the, like the world Uyghur Congress, the Uyghur human rights project. Um, and so those, these are all organizations that have been existing and doing doing really doing a lot of work to um advocate for for um for 
essentially inshallah freedom and uh, human rights for the Uyghurs before before it's too late and before the genocide is wiped out. So, um, you know, people can you know look up at these organizations and see where they want to help and get involved with. Um, but yeah, or they yeah. can just do their individual activism and, and just keep themselves aware um, and, and do what they can within their local communities. Um, especially, now, I would say, if you're a university student, do take advantage of your university because once you leave college, like, it's hard to get funding. It's hard to, like, you know, have these spaces and resources available. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's been my biggest thing that I've learned because I'm graduating this semester, inshallah, and I'm like, oh, my God, once I'm, once I'm done with Duke, I'm not going to have, like, all this, like, money and, like, this space and yeah. these, this ability to, like, do as much as I was what I'm doing now. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely true. do take advantage of that well uh, sister Aiden, i i think you're a very talented young muslim i i think um hopefully inshallah if there's a few more of you um that we could actually um create at least for the, the Uyghur cause that that we could somehow um build some kind of movement towards bringing this to um not just a muslim attention but a, an attention that all the all the people in the world can see that hey this is this is uh, this is something that really needs to be looked at. This is a, a, a genocide of of, mm-hmm. for God's sake! How, how could you ignore a genocide? You know, in modern day. But, but um, uh, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, if there if there's anything that we missed out, do you, do you, you would you like to let anyone know if, if we didn't cover something that you felt like was missed? Um, all I would say was just everyone who's listening, um, like. You know, you might, and like everyone who's listening, obviously, please do whatever you can to spread the word and make this a topic of conversation that you have with friends and family when we're talking about oppressive states. Like, even khutbas, like, it's just been so sad. Like, we'd go to khutbas and they're making dua at the end of the, at the end, and to all these oppressed nations and these people, and you never ever hear a mentioning of the Uyghur people for the longest yeah. time, right? And so, the biggest thing is make dua for us, for like, keep us in your dua's because. I think the biggest thing is, and what's made people actually very, Uyghur people very like pessimistic and very like hopeless is the fact that like we felt like the Muslim community has, Muslim Ummah has forgotten us. Mm. Um, you know, and it's just like, you know, we, our situation compared to, you know, I don't want to compare like oppressions or whatever, yeah. but it's like what we're seeing in East Turkestan is like a whole, it's like unprecedented. I don't think you've ever seen this in any part of the world ever with, with the technology that we've seen, the concentration camps, the way that this, the crimes of humanity against humanity are completely hidden. The fact that complete practicing Islam is completely banned. Like you're, you're essentially feel like you're suffocating. Um, and, and you're like the, people say that they're the walking dead, like Uyghurs who've lived there, they've become envious of like actual genocides like they, they become envious of Rohingyas because they're like at least they get to be killed off right away we we don't even get to die we don't get to commit suicide because com- committing suicide is haram and so we have to live through this every single day and it's just like hell it's like we're the walking dead and so you know just that that always that kind of statement has always rung with me and I'm like oh, oh my god like this is just like yeah so like yeah yeah so um you know the fact that we're here, the, the fact that if you're living in a free world and a free state and a free community, you are in a huge advantage. And like, mm-hmm. be be grateful. Yeah. Um, every Good. time you make sujood and you or you say Assalamu alaikum, remember that what you are doing now, if you were to do that there, you'd be behind bars and like being tortured to death. So it's just just like be grateful and also just like amplify our voices because they're being erased. Yeah. And 
the worst thing you can do, do is just be indifferent and you know it, it's it, oh, that's, yeah. that's letting exactly. them win you exactly. if you want to do something that is helping the the chinese in their oppression just be silent and act like you never heard about anything and, and you've let them win but uh thank you so much again sister aiden well, hopefully thank inshallah you. we have a follow up conversation and uh we look we Shalom. hope to hear more from you again in the future um for my co-host Norian and sister aiden my name is sim Assalamualaikum. alaikum